So this morning we have 14 through 20. Those should be up on the screen and have them before you in the Bible. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. My mother is now a school counselor, but for uh, most of my life, she was a uh, family and consumer science teacher. She was a home ec teacher, if you know it by that name. And I remember there was a lesson that she did every year with her students, where uh, she would give them a bunch of recipes. They were making cookies, and they would make a bunch of different batches of cookies, and one batch was perfect. It followed the recipe completely, exactly, and those were the ones everyone wanted to eat. But every other batch had something missing. This one had no salt. This one had no sugar, no eggs, no flour. Or maybe it would just double the salt, double the sugar, double the eggs. And at the end of that lesson, everyone would taste all the cookies, and she made them eat all of these terrible cookies <laughs> to eventually finally get to that one perfect chocolate chip cookie at the end from the batch to follow the recipe. And the goal of the lesson, at least, was to, to let you know, hey, you've got these rules, you have to follow them. This is the recipe, this is what you do. You have to follow eight steps, one through however many, exactly. If you don't, you're not going to end up with the cookie that you want. So that was the goal of her lesson. But along the way, what it did was it showed the students what is a cookie. If it has no salt, if it has no sugar, it is not a cookie. I don't know what it is. If it has the one that was double salt, it was like a salty brick, but it wasn't a cookie. There were essential elements of a cookie that if it is a cookie, it must have this amount of salt. It must have this amount of sugar, this amount of flour, these eggs, these chocolate chips. If it's missing any one of those elements, what you end up with at the end is something completely different. It's not a cookie at all. It's nothing. It's nothing edible, at least. What we can see from the text today in Christ's preaching, his first message, what Mark shows us as he's going out and proclaiming the good news are three essential elements of Christ's message. Three essential elements of the gospel. There are other good newses. There are other things which are good. There are other proclamations that you could make, and they may be good. They might be kind of close to what this is, but if it's not Christ's message, if it's not his gospel, it's not the good news. If it's something that claims to be a cookie, but has no sugar, not a cookie. If it's some other gospel, but doesn't contain the elements of the message of Christ, it's not a gospel. It is something else completely, something else different entirely. So from the passage today, we can see three essential elements of the message of Christ. The first essential element is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. His first message, as he goes out and starts telling people, his first proclamation, the first thing he does, now that he is beginning his ministry, as he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his first part. 
That's the first essential element of his, of his message. It's a summation and an introduction to everything that he has come to proclaim. And he tells them that the time is fulfilled. Their wait is over. They've been waiting for years and years, hoping that someday the Messiah would come, that the kingdom of heaven would come down and be down on earth as it is in heaven. And he's saying, the time is now. The time has been fulfilled. You don't have to wait anymore. I'm here. The, the time has come. Galatians 4.4 4 calls this time, when Jesus came, calls it the fullness of time. That God was waiting until the exact moment, the exact perfect place, the exact perfect point in time to send his son into the earth to accomplish his work, to accomplish his public ministry, his gospel. The promises of God are fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. That's what he's proclaiming to them. But he's also saying that there is a kingdom. It's not just a generic, well, the time's now, and you guys have to figure it out. He's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come. He's telling these people who are exiles, they're Jews living under Roman occupation. They have no kingdom. They have no home. They have no country. They have no place. He's saying, no, you do have a place. There is a kingdom. It's come. There is a kingdom. There is a king. There is a place for you. Kingdoms aren't primarily about kings. They're about space. They're about a place. A kingdom which has no place, which has no space, is no kingdom. It may be a king, but it's only a king in his own head. He's saying that in the kingdom of God, there is a place, and there is a place for you. He's giving hope to these people who have been waiting in silence, waiting in exile, hoping that someday this day would come. He's saying it's here. There is a place for you. That place is the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom, and that kingdom is God's kingdom. It's a kingdom with God as its king. And a kingdom with God as its king has a good king indeed. See, we, particularly here in America, we have a natural predisposition against kings. Okay, I'm pretty active on Twitter. There are about three words that I have muted on Twitter. I don't want to see them. That's, you can put these words in. You never have to see another tweet that has those words in there. One of them is royal wedding. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. They're not even real kings and queens anymore. Kate Middleton and whichever prince she married does not matter to me. I don't like kings. And here on earth, the part of the reason we don't like kings is because we hear that word and we immediately think tyrant. We immediately think dictator. We immediately think man who's just living off the fruits of his own people. But God is the good king. He is the good king. See, our kings stink because our kings are men. Our kings are like us. There's not anything inherently different between you and the king of England. Queen, I guess, of England. But having the good God as your good king is only a delight for people who are his subjects. If the good God is your good king, that is good for you. Psalm uh, 47, 5-7 shows us this. I think Alan's going to have that on the screen for us. It says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. 
Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. Now, maybe I'm misreading it, but I don't think so. Uh, that doesn't sound like people who are angry about their king. It doesn't sound like people who wish, like, if we only had a democracy, if we could just figure this out amongst ourselves without having that guy in charge, that would just be so much better. No, that, that's people who are worshiping, they're praising, they're saying, yes, we have a king, and that king is God. We have to sing praises to him. It's that same message that Christ is proclaiming, that there is a kingdom which has come, and that kingdom has God as its king, and that is a good thing for his people. He is good, but he is still a king. He is a good king, but he is a king nonetheless. I'm reminded of uh, a passage in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a books that you may have read as a child or you may have seen the movies. And uh, the animals are introducing the children to Aslan, the king, the lion. And he says, Aslan is the lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I, I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And the beaver almost laughs. He says, safe? Said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell him. See, our king is not safe, but he is good. We have a king. He's the good king. He's the only one. He's not safe, but he is good. He's not soft, but he is good. He's not merely nice, but he is good. And because he's good, he is safe for his people. Because he's good, he is gentle with his children. Because he's good, he does more than mere niceness ever could. And because he's good, he demands fealty. He demands that his people follow him. We'll talk about that more later in this passage as we get there. But what he does is he says, I am the king, so you have to follow me. We follow him because he's the king. And because he's the king... You better follow him. See, he is a good king, but he is a king. And he demands loyalty. He demands fealty. He demands being followed by his people. And this kingdom that Christ is proclaiming, which is the kingdom of God with its good king, but still a king, it has come with him. See, he's saying he walked in, and now the kingdom is here. He is here, therefore the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come in the fullness of time, through the Advent, through the Incarnation, through the Christmas that we're going to celebrate in a few months, the coming of Christ as a man. He's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom with the coming of himself. It's the first century equivalent of now the party's here. Christ walked in. He said, now that I'm here, the kingdom is here. It's like when my wife walks into a room. She said, all right, now the party's here. <laughs> Christ walked in. He said, all right, now the kingdom's here. If he's there, the kingdom must be there. He is God. He brings the kingdom with him. And he is telling his people that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's his first essential element to his message. The second is to repent and believe the gospel. He's saying that, yes, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, you must repent and believe in the gospel. He's telling them to repent. To repent is to turn from what you are doing and turn toward something else. 
is to turn from one direction and start heading another direction. In the case of Christianity, you're not turning toward something else, but toward someone else. You're turning toward God, you're turning toward Christ and His way. You turn from yourself and to Christ. You turn from your way and toward His way. From the things of the world and toward the things of heaven. You turn from your sin and toward His mercy and grace. Now, if His first message, first element of what He's saying, the first thing He says for you to do, the first was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's nothing for you to do within that. The second thing he says is, repent and believe in the gospel. So the first message to you is that you have to repent. So you are not on the right track. Apart from Christ, you're going nowhere. You might have all the money in the world. You might have all the power in the world. You might have the best family in the world. You might have the best job in the world. You might be as happy as any human being has ever been. But if you are not turned toward Christ, repent. That's his message. There are no asterisks in what he's saying. He doesn't say, yeah, some of you guys might have a little bit of repenting to do. Just a few degrees off. He shows up, repent. Believe in the gospel. There's an unadulterated command there that you must repent because the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God must be in some way or in many ways antithetical to the kingdoms of this earth. If there's no one who's headed the right direction and now Christ has come and said repent, that means there's nothing in this earth that's ever going to tell you this is it. This is the right direction. That's never going to be true of anything that you see. It took Christ coming out of heaven to show you that there is a better way, a higher way, something toward which, toward which you must turn. He's calling all people to repent. He says clearly and forcefully, there is a king who has a kingdom, and that kingdom is now here. Therefore, you, O oh man, must repent. There is no one on this earth who does not need repentance. There's no one who's already on the right track. There's no one who, having repented, did it perfectly that first time, and they just never have to do it again. Today is October 31st, which we know as Halloween. Uh, some people know that also as Reformation Day. It's the day on which, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the uh, chapel door in Wittenberg and started off what we call the Protestant Reformation. Okay, we are not Catholics in this room, in part, because of what Martin Luther did in 1517. And as a part of his 95 Theses, which tore apart the church and caused a whole lot of controversy, the very first thing that he wrote, you know what that was? His first thesis was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. If you are in Christ... You didn't just repent that one time, and now it's on you. Now you just got to grab life by the horns and wrestle it to the ground. Like, he wiped your slate clean, and you got to keep it clean. That's not it at all. He wiped the slate clean, and then you keep messing it up, and you keep saying, hey, I'm sorry. He says, that's okay. It's forever clean. Nothing sticks anymore. 
Your entire life, if you are in Christ, is meant to be an entire life of repentance. Daily, moment by moment, looking at Christ and saying, I am not you, and I am not meeting your perfection. Give me your righteousness. And he does, every time. That is your entire life if you are in Christ. You should be one of repentance. He's telling the people to repent, but he's also telling them to believe. You must repent, but your repentance has to be grounded in your belief in the gospel. <coughs> We've got some verses up on the screen that Alan's going to show for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. <coughs> See, your salvation is not based on the perfection of your repentance. Your salvation is based on the perfection of to whom you are repenting. saying you've been saved by grace, something you didn't deserve, through faith, not something you do. And even that faith is a gift of God to you. You didn't contribute anything to your salvation except your sin. That's all you brought to the table. That's all you ever bring to the table. He's saying repent, but that repentance is based off of the belief. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith and belief go hand in hand. In the Bible, there's not some sort of dichotomy between those two words like we might think of. We might think that belief is something I think. Belief is something I feel. But faith is something I do. The Bible never really says that. It always ties those two things together. They're always getting at the same thing. And it also says that there is no repentance apart from faith, and there is no faith apart from repentance. So on the basis of your faith, which is a gift from God, and is not a work of your own, you then respond in repentance, and you are saved on the basis of your faith, rather than the perfection of your repentance. That's the gospel. That's what Christ is proclaiming to these people. You didn't do anything special in any of that process. All you did was receive the gift of grace in the form of faith that's given to you, through which God saved you. But he's not saying to believe in something generic, something just out there. Just believe. If you go to Hobby Lobby, there's like a thousand wooden things that say believe on them. And what? Hobby Lobby never answers. But Christ does. Your faith, your belief, which results not only in your salvation, but also in your repentance, is not in you. It's not in your work, but it's in Christ. And it's in his. So you repent and you believe, but you believe in the gospel. You believe in Christ's message of salvation, which he is coming to proclaim. His message of salvation, which is the gospel, is that you can be saved by repenting and believing in the gospel. In his own person, in his own work. That by turning from your sin and turning toward his righteousness, believing that Christ is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life under God's law that you couldn't live, that you could never do. He died a sacrificial death that you deserve to die. He did it in your place and for your sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead after three days. He came back to life defeating sin, defeating death, to give you the promise that you could be raised, that you might have new life in him. 
He ascended to heaven, never to die again. He is alive now, seated at the right hand of the Father, having finished the work of your salvation. He has secured you in himself and to himself for forever. So that you, even someone like you, could be saved. That's the gospel. That's the message of Christ. That's what he's proclaiming. He's saying there's a kingdom and it's here and there's a place for you. So repent and believe. Come into the kingdom. Have faith. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. So believe in my message. That's what he's telling his people. That's the second essential element is that you should repent and believe in the gospel. The third is for you to follow him. Verses uh, 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Third essential element of Christ's message is that you have to follow him. He's saying, follow me. I am the Christ. Follow me. His message to his first followers, brother fishermen who are hard at work, is he's saying, nope, stop what you're doing. Follow me. Doesn't matter what you were doing before. It might be the best thing in the world. Follow me. Follow him, his person. They don't know it yet, but he's the God-man. He's the one who sent from the Father. He's the Christ. He's the chosen Messiah. He's come to set his people free. He is God. So he has to be followed. Just as God is the king, so he must be sworn fealty to. Christ is the Messiah, so he must be followed. We have to follow his person. We have to also follow his way. To follow him is to follow him on his way. It's to do and to be as he is. John, when he came, was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And Christ is calling these people, his followers, his disciples, to follow him on that way which Christ, which uh, John prepared for him. So his disciples must be those who are living and walking as he lived and as he walked. You cannot be a disciple of God if you are not following him. If you're not on his way. And if you are not following him... If you are not on his way, if you are not striving moment by moment to live as he lived, I gotta tell you, I don't think you're a follower of Christ. I don't think you're a disciple of Jesus. I don't think you're in the kingdom. Because followers of Christ follow Christ. By definition. That's what they do. So you have to be following him on his way. But luckily for us, he doesn't just lay that down as some sort of command that they aren't able to follow. He lays it down and says this in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. See, your job is to follow as best as you can. But he doesn't say what the end of that is. He's saying, he, didn't say, he doesn't say, follow me, and you're going to make yourself into a fisher of man. Follow me, and after long enough, you might be able to figure this out. He's saying, yeah, you follow me, I'm going to do all the work. Follow me, I 
will make you become fishers of men. He's saying that it's on him. Our entire Christian life is not only begun by God granting us faith, but it's sustained by God as he allows us to persevere in our faith, and he holds us fast unto the end until he has made us become. Look at that statement. I will make you become fishers of men. I will. So Christ, God, is the initiator within that. He's the one who does it, and he will do it. He secures it. I will make you. He doesn't say, I might see what happens after a long enough time. I will make. I will form. I will fashion. I will make you become. He's the one who does the work. And he makes us, he forms us to become. He cultivates. See, uh, if you have a different version in that verse, it might say that uh, I will make you fish for people. I will send you out to fish for people. What the ESV is trying to do here is trying to get to the, the exact uh, form of the Greek word from back behind, where it says, I will make you become. It's trying to say that there is a process here, <clears throat> that it's not a snap your fingers and you're a fisher of man. I will make you become. Hey, my uh, little daughter is 12 weeks old today. Uh, she is becoming a better sleeper. <laughs> she is not a great sleeper. But she is becoming one. It's a process. She's only 12 weeks old. These are her first 12 weeks. She, this is like her first crack at trying to sleep. But she's becoming. You, as a follower of Christ, don't snap your fingers and become a fisher of man. But God will make you become. It's a process. It takes time. You will never arrive at Christian perfection on this earth. But on the last day, you'll get his perfection. And in the meantime, he will make you become like he is. And you can rest in the promise of Christ to his disciples that if you're his follower, he will make you become that which he intends. This isn't just a one-off thing that he says this one time and we're basing all of it off of this one verse. It's something that's repeated over and over throughout the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.12, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 46.4, an Old Testament reference, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear I will carry and will save. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All those promises, not a single one of them said, he who promises faithful because you've got this figured out. It said, he who promises faithful, period. All those promises of your perseverance, of your growing, of you becoming, are based not on you, but on him. He's saying, I'm going to do it. I will make you become. He who promised is faithful. He will carry. He will save. He who began to work will bring it to completion. He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to you. All of those promises are built on who he is. See, your Christian life, your sanctification, your growth in holiness is a process. 
Theologians call it progressive sanctification. That you grow, you progress, you move on forward in holiness, sanctification. You look more like Christ as you progress in your holiness. That is the Christian life. That from the day that you put your faith in Christ, he takes you and he makes you become more like him day in and day out until the day of your death. And on that day, he will give you all the righteousness that he ever had. And it's yours. And you have the promises of God that that will happen because of who he is. Not because you arrived there strong, not because you arrived there perfect, not because you just had the discipline to get there and be exactly who you were supposed to be. He knows that's never going to happen. And he says, it's not based on who you are and what you do, but on who I am, on what I do. He is going to help you progress and grow in your sanctification. If you are his, he will make you become that which he has intended for you. And that which he has intended for you, if you are his, is for you to be a fisher of men. We'll talk more about spreading the gospel message throughout this book and the life of this church as long as I am your pastor. But let me just emphasize one aspect of what Christ is saying here. He's saying, I will make you become fishers of men. The defining trait of fishers is that they fish. It's what they do. Fishermen fish. Fishers fish. If you stand at the dock and never put bait in the water, you are not a fisherman, you're a guy in a funny hat. If you're a fisherman, you fish. You put the bait in the water, you cast it out, you see what comes back. You fish. As Christians, we are to throw out the bait of the gospel to all we can and just see who bites. We have to see who's hungry for the good news of God and Christ. All who come to him, he will not cast away. So we have to be faithful to fish and just see who we catch. I would love to see what God does when his people pray for a harvest. Let's see what he does when we clearly, gently, and earnestly present the gospel before everyone we meet, before our neighbors, before our friends, week after week, faithfully casting out the bait of the gospel and seeing what comes up. It's the only thing in life that's not a bait and switch. Like for the fish, that's a, that's a bait and switch. They thought they were getting bait, now they get eaten. For those who come to Christ, they think they only get bait, and when they get here, they get him. The only one that can sustain them. So we have to fish. Christ will build his church, and he called his followers to be the vehicle for the expansion of his kingdom. So it's up to us to join him in that work. He has called you to follow him, and he will make you become fishers of men. We can also see the disciples' response here. They did what they were supposed to do. They had the proper response. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. <clears throat> Verse 20. And immediately he called them and they left their fathers at the end of the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They did it immediately. They didn't hesitate. They didn't waver. They didn't say, ah, well, let's see what happens with this Jesus guy. Immediately they left their nets. They left the life that they knew. They were willing to leave their livelihoods, their family. They left their father sitting in a boat. They left it all to follow him. They were probably pretty good at fishing. They probably knew it. They probably understood it. 
It was how they made their money. It was how they lived their lives. And they ditched all of it to follow Christ. And that's the proper response. To leave all you have and to follow him to whatever end. They didn't know the end. They just said, this guy told me to follow him, and I did. We would call that kind of crazy. They're following him to whatever end. I'm reminded of uh, in Lord of the Rings, uh, the second movie, if you are a movie rather than books, uh, there's right before a big battle, King Theoden is talking to one of his servants, and they're putting on his battle, and every, his armor, everything seems hopeless. They, they think they're about to die, but what are they supposed to do? They've got to go fight. Uh, and the king turns to his servant and says, Who am I? The, the guy says, You are our king, sire. And do you trust your king? Your men, my lord, will follow you to whatever end. Crestfallen, Thaden turns and says, To whatever end? Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadows. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. How did it come to this? You're saying they'll follow you to whatever end, and that end looks like death. Christ followers follow him to whatever end, and that end looks like life. Follow him to whatever end. We know the end. We don't have to guess. We've got it. We know how it ends. For Christ, it ended in a cross. And for all of his disciples, you know how it also ends? In a cross. You have to take up your cross and follow him. The end of your life as a Christian is not health, wealth, and happiness. It's not good times and the best thing you can imagine here on this earth. It is death. It's persecution. It's suffering. It's pain. It's a whole life filled with homelessness because this is not our home. But just like after the cross, there was an empty tomb, for you in your death, there is a resurrection. There is a hope. There's a promise. To whatever end for the Christian is the kingdom of God, which has come in Christ, but will come finally and fully at the end. When you follow Christ, you follow him to whatever end, and that end is good for you. The message of Christ in the beginning of Mark had three essential elements. The kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel and follow Christ. That's the gospel. We're going to have 16 chapters of Mark talking about what Christ is meaning when he says these words. What that looks like when the kingdom of God comes down and is on earth. And for his people, when you accept that, when you trust that, there is only a good end for you. Let's so come up here in a second, and we're going to sing uh, one more song. I don't do this all the time. I won't do it every week. Um, but in that time, if you have questions, if you have not repented and believed, if you are not following Christ, come talk to me. You can do it today. You can receive the promises of God today. You can trust that he will make you become like he is starting today. And when that is true of you, the whatever end for you is only good. I pray that if you have not done that, that you will.
Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the truth that we've heard from your word. Thank you for the coming of Christ to this earth, for not only his person, but also his work. Thank you for your kingdom, which will come down and be down on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for the gospel in which we believe and to which we repent. Thank you for the opportunity to follow you, to be as you are, to look like you, to grow in our sanctification and in our holiness day after day after day until eventually we will be as you are. You are the good king and you are our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.